Okay, I want to start this morning by playing a little game of what I call mind pop. Uh, so it's what pops into your mind when I say something. You know, what's the connotation for you? How does it make you feel? It's, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just different things to different people. Uh, so, for example, if I said the word fire, some people might go, oh, warm and cosy on a winter's night, or some people might go, scary, because I got caught in a bushfire once. So it'll just depend. Okay, here we go. First one, ice cream. Mm, okay. Adolf Hitler. Mm. The season of spring. Mm. First thing. Okay. Now, here's one. I'm going to say another two words, and I want you, for the first one, I'll get you to share with the person next to you just quickly the first thing that popped into your mind, and then the second word. So the first word is evangelism. Tell the person next to you what popped into your mind. Okay, really quick. Second word, discipleship. Now, would I be right in assuming that in our minds, discipleship is the soft, fuzzy concept, whereas evangelism is the hard-edged, intrusive concept? But the Bible says, the Bible tells us, there's not much difference between those two things. If I could look inside your head right now, if I could read your mind, I might come across some of these tensions. This might be you. One, I'm feeling uncomfortable about this evangelism thing, but I also love Jesus and I want my friends and my family to hear more about him. Or it might be, I'm not the sort of person who could ever speak about what I believe. Religion's a private matter. But maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe I need to rethink that. Maybe the tension is, this would be great for Dave and Ruth or Thomas and Laura or Mel, but not me. But I wish it was me because I really want my friends and family to hear about Jesus. Now, if any of those tensions are you, you need to know that you are not alone. Most Christians feel this tension. And the tension of, I want to tell people about Jesus, but I'm scared or I don't know what to say. So I'm hoping and praying that today, what you see in the Bible will help you ease that tension and that you'll begin to pick up some tools that might help you as you start to talk about Jesus with people. And the first place I want to start is that passage that was read for us, um, which uh, I've got a little bit up on the screen there, uh, from Matthew. Uh, Jesus is preparing to leave his friends after the cross and resurrection, and he leaves them with this last message. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's a call by Jesus to his disciples to be about the business of making disciples, of growing the church, of growing that little band that at that moment was only about 12 and growing it. And it's a call for all of us not just the 11, mount, the 11 apostles on that mountainside or the professionals in our church. 
How do we know that? Well, there are a few things in this passage that imply that discipleship is the responsibility of everyone, not just those 11. So firstly, three reasons. Firstly, if the 11 disciples were to make make disciples and teach them to obey everything that Jesus had taught them, then part of what the 11 were to teach the new disciples was this command. That is, to make disciples of all nations. So they've got to teach them this one. So built into the very nature of making disciples is that disciples will make more disciples who will go on to make more disciples. And that goes on right through the following 20 centuries until somebody preached the gospel to you and somebody preached the gospel to me, followed us up and nurtured us until we became disciples. Now, as disciples, we need to obey what Jesus has said when he says, make disciples. Have you ever seen those um, groups of people who get in a long line to carry out a task, like carrying buckets or sandbags or rescuing somebody from the surf? Well, the same concept is on view here. It's like there's this great long line of disciples stretching across 2,000 years. It starts on that hill in Jerusalem in 33 AD, right through to Tugra in 2021. You see, somebody, one of those 11 disciples, preached the gospel to somebody else, made a disciple. And that person went on to make a disciple of somebody else. And that person went on to make a disciple of somebody else. And it stretches down over two centuries until somebody preached the gospel to you. And you became a disciple. You're now part of that long line that will keep on stretching on until the day Jesus returns. Secondly, the task that was given to those 11 disciples was much too colossal to be just for them. How were 11 people going to make disciples of all nations? That would be impossible. This command actually implies something bigger is going on, something worldwide, something God-empowering. This is not just a command for the 11. And the third thing is, look at that uh, last little verse. Uh, And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. See, this implies that Jesus is initiating a new era, which will continue until the end of time. See, this is a strange command if it's just for the 11. They will only live for, you know, a maximum of maybe another 50 years. Most of them died long before that. But we know that after Pentecost, Jesus is present with his disciples through the Spirit. His promise is one that carries on until Jesus returns when all things will be wrapped up. He is with us to the very end of the age. He is with the new disciples to the very end of the age. See, in this wonderful passage, we see Jesus commissioning the 11 and every disciple since then to continue his work of making disciples. So it's our mission. It's our calling. It's our ministry. It's not just the work of the 11, not just the first century Christians, not just our paid staff. No, Jesus catches us all up in this great work down the centuries. We are to be committed to making disciples, to disciple making. Now, that's a great command. A 
it's a great thing to have for, for us in Matthew 28. But why? Why is it so important? Why is it important that we make disciples? Well, there are five truths or five realities that I'm now going to point out to you that hopefully will shape our thinking as to why this is really important. The first one is God's purposes for the world. God has been very gracious to us, uh, his children. He has told us what his plans and purposes are for this world. We're not left to guess. It's not world peace. It's not freedom from hunger. It's not eradication of poverty. Let's have a look and see what it is. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reached their fulfilment. Here it is, his great plan and purpose for the world to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, according to that passage, Christ is at the centre of all God's purposes. One day, every man, woman and child will know and have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And since God has told us that this is his purpose, it would be foolish for his people to have something different in mind. If we are to work in partnership with God to further his purposes then what we will want to do is call on people, men and women, to recognise that God exists and that Jesus is Lord. We will make disciples. The second reality is the certainty of heaven and hell. That knowledge of the certainty of heaven and hell changes all of life. The problem with our world is that we are so totally consumed by what we can see. But there is more to life than this one. And eternity is all about heaven and hell. Jesus clearly warned about that in, in that story of, his, of the rich man and Lazarus, where, he, where Lazarus goes to, to hell. See, there is a judgment coming and all men and women will appear before God, sorry, will appear before the man God has appointed as judge. Here it is in 2 Thessalonians. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They are very confronting words, aren't they? Now, you will no doubt read about or may even hear as you listen to YouTubes or podcasts Many Christian teachers tell you that God is too loving to allow an eternity in hell. But they don't take account of these verses in 1, Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians. Everyone will face judgment, whether they've obeyed the gospel of Jesus. And heaven and hell are the only two resulting options that face our family, our friends, our neighbours, unless they, they hear and obey the gospel and become disciples. You know, when I'm um, cooking at home in my kitchen and my grandchildren are around my feet and I open the oven door, which is down low, I'm constantly warning them, it's very hot, keep away, don't touch. I want them to understand, I want them to get that message. The hot oven door is a dangerous reality for them and they need to treat it with respect. 
Hell is also a dangerous reality. And our friends and neighbours need to hear us talk about the dangers facing them. Well, the third reality of life is the compulsion of love. You know, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5.14, Paul says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. That word compels, um, it's like, it seems like a pretty neutral word, but it's a very expressive word uh, in, in the New Testament. It's the word used when the gospel writers talk of people crowding Jesus. It means pressured, hemmed in, no room to move, like cattle or sheep going up a, a chase in, into a pen. They're just there and they've just got to keep going. It's to be under the mastery of something, surrounded by something, driven by something, gripped by something. Something has a hold of Paul's heart. And this, and it's love. You see, this is at the heart of being a thriving, healthy Christian. Paul is saying that the desire to make disciples grows out of our being gripped by Christ's love. He can do nothing else. And he's really only imitating his Lord. In Matthew 9, it says of Jesus, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The fourth reality is the preeminence of the cross. When we look at the priority of Jesus' ministry, we get a clear view here of our third reality. Jesus could heal. We see that plainly in the Gospels. He could have emptied hospitals the world over. He could create food and eradicate world hunger. He could calm storms. He could eliminate right now natural disasters. But he chose to turn his back on those things when he was alive and instead chose the cross. It matters more than any other good Jesus could have chosen. See, what the world needed then in the first century and what it still needs more than anything else is reconciliation between us and God. So God sent us a saviour to die on the cross. He didn't send us a doctor or a teacher or a politician or a social worker. He sent us a saviour. Look at Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. In Jesus' words, they are his, that is his purpose for being alive, for coming to earth to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. This is when he's in the garden. He knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. See, the question needs to be asked. If God could have achieved his purposes for the world and not include the death of his son, don't you think he would have taken that path? 
cost him enormously to give his son. See, the fact of the cross demonstrates the priority of rescue from judgment. The fourth reality that will shape us is the urgency of life. See, this life lived in the created physical order is a snap of the fingers when compared to the life to come. Paul says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, our physical life here now is light, fleeting, wasting away, of small moment. But eternity is weighty, endures forever. It's glorious. It's of momentous significance. To desire to see as many as possible enter into a glorious eternity begins with knowing that this life is short and the task of proclamation is urgent. So let me ask you, what passions and causes have you taken up? What do you expend your time and energy promoting? What charities do you give your money to? There are many worthwhile causes out there. Cancer research, children in poverty, Red Cross, the Smith family, the Heart Foundation. Now hear me correctly, do not give up expressing your compassion for people who suffer in this life in all those ways. Show compassion for them. But there is something in these five realities, what God wants for his world, the certainty of heaven and hell, the fact of God's love, the priority of the cross and the urgency of life. There's something in those five things that tell us that what every man, woman and child needs more than anything else is to hear the gospel and become disciples. Can I urge you to make that your greatest passion? Give yourself to the ministry of making disciples first because the reality of the cross demands it of us. Okay, there are five realities. Let's have a look at what a, what a disciple is. Most people would say that a disciple is a follower. They're only partly right. The word disciple means a learner, a student, a pupil who is apprenticed to a teacher in order to learn the teacher's words and to observe and imitate their life and practice. It doesn't mean a follower, but you have to follow the teacher to learn from them, to ask questions, to imitate them. But it's not learning a creed or a set of beliefs alone. It's learning that transforms, transforms your heart, your mind and your life. That is certainly what we're talking about with Christian discipleship. The disciples wants to learn from Jesus so that she'll be transformed completely. Look at what Jesus says about disciples. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Yes, you know, we will learn the content of what Jesus says and does, 
and our minds and our understanding will be stretched and challenged. We'll learn the Bible, we'll know the Scriptures, but the end goal is that all of life will be transformed and we'll see reality through God's eyes. Now loving and being devoted exclusively to Jesus and living in submission to his kingship. It follows then that discipleship, what we do to make disciples, means helping someone else become a learner so that they'll be transformed to be like Jesus. It's about walking with a person to help them become more like Jesus. So what's involved in making disciples? If Jesus has commanded us to make disciples, it will be helpful to think about what's involved in making disciples. To help us do this, I want to consider the Christian life as a continuum. Okay, so I think you've got this in your, uh, your book as well. So at one end, the unbeliever is blithely living in ignorance and rebellion, not knowing Jesus. That's one end. At the other end, we find a persevering disciple of Jesus ready to enter heaven. That's the continuum from unbelief right through to ready to enter into heaven. The discipleship doesn't stop or start when they become a Christian, and I've put that cross there in the middle to say becoming a Christian. Now, uh, no, so that's not going to work, so stop there. Uh, the arrows, both ways, indicate that there was life before and is life after the period of discipleship because it head, they head on into eternal life, don't they? once they head into heaven. And there is a point during the discipleship process where the unbeliever becomes a Christian and crosses from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Discipleship is about getting a person from the left-hand point of the continuum to the right-hand side, from beginning to end. But it does not happen in one move. It's an accumulation of small steps, both small and large, but inexorably moving to the right. That's what we heard from Erin. Uh, she started off being an unbeliever in rejection and ignorance, and lots of little steps along the way, and she's still on the path after she's become a Christian. And each Christian, according to Jesus, is to play their part in moving disciples, whether they're potential disciples as unbelievers, whether they're seekers, whether they're believers, whether they're learners, everyone plays our part in helping everybody else move to the right. That's our role as disciple makers. Now, there are lots of steps along the way. And what I'm going to do is just put them all in. And actually, um, how are we going for time? Ten away. Yes, there's time. Uh, you have a talk to the person next to you. What are some of the steps along the way of that continuum that you think of seeing an unbeliever move through to becoming a persevering disciple. Talk to the person next to you. What are some disciples that you would, uh, that you would expect to see along the way? Okay. I'm going to put up the ones that I've sort of worked out, some general steps. Put your hand up if you have, uh, if you have these as I click them on. So... 
befriending the unbeliever. Who had that? Just befriending somebody. Okay, great. Uh, loving and sharing life with the unbeliever. <coughs> so after you've become a Christian, sharing and loving life. I'm going to go back to all of these steps in a little minute. Answering questions from the unbeliever. Who had that one? No? What am I doing? Am I doing anything wrong? No? <laughs> uh, sharing your story of why you're a Christian. Anybody have that one? Okay. Well, we've got some work to do. Um, explaining the gospel. Who had that one? That surely must be part of it. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> inviting people to events. Now, you're all doing that, aren't you? At different times, inviting people to events. The person becomes a Christian. And what happens after that? Uh, studying the Bible. Uh, doing new Christian Bible studies. So after someone's become a Christian, doing a new Christian Bible study with them. Um, modelling godliness. Uh, reading Christian books together. Anybody have that one? Okay. Uh, praying together. Seeing Christians persevere to the end. Seeing a Christian persevere to the end. Lots of steps along the way in making a disciple. It doesn't stop when they become a Christian and it doesn't start when they become a Christian because somebody's got to disciple them and explain the gospel to them so they can become a Christian. Lots of people think that discipleship starts when they become a Christian. No, 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 no. It starts way back because the whole thing is the process of making disciples. Okay, let's have a look at each one of those ones just quickly. Befriending the unbeliever. This will involve us in moving intentionally outside the comfortable circle of our Christian community and forming friendships with those you don't, who don't know Jesus. You know, we get stuck in our little groove of becoming to church and Bible study, etc. But we've got to move outside if we're going to befriend unbelievers. You know, maybe it, <coughs> examples could be joining a walking group. Uh, joining a book club, joining a sporting team, stuff like that. The desire is that sometime down the track, as we befriend unbelievers, we'll be able to introduce Jesus into our conversation. <clears throat> Christians ought to be known as the friendliest people in their street or their workplace, people who are willing to make friends. Second one, loving and sharing life with the unbeliever. We will want our new friends, once we've befriended them, to get to know that we've got them to know we've got a genuine interest in them, that we will go out of our way to show them love. This might, you know, invite people, this might involve inviting them out for a meal with you, just hanging out together, helping them out when they're in difficult uh, situations, sharing your life with them. The third one, answering questions. And as you live a transparent life, questions will inevitably arise concerning your motivations about how you live and how you make decisions and why you make the choices you do. And here's a great opportunity to point them to the one who has purchased you with his life. Sharing your story of why you're a Christian. This is one of the simplest and easiest ways of sharing the gospel with someone. And we're going to do more about that um, in the second session this afternoon. Explaining the gospel. 
This is now getting serious as the seeker engages with you and wants to know more of who Jesus is and what he's done. And at this point, we need to be very clear about what the gospel is and what it's not. Inviting them to events or occasion where the, uh, the, the gospel is clearly articulated uh, and where the Christian faith uh, is em embodied in the Christian community is on view. This might be an evangelistic event or a series like Christianity Explored or simply church. And then they become a Christian. And there is great joy in heaven and for you as your friend expresses trust in Christ. And then doing, doing follow-up Bible studies. Here the new Christian is nurtured in the essentials of the Christian faith. Um, the basics of Bible doctrine and assurance and godliness and encouraging them to serve. This is a, an exciting step of discipleship as you see people grow in their understanding of the scriptures and their love for Jesus. This is where the disciple really takes off on his journey of learning the ways of the master. And then studying the Bible, either in a group or one-to-one. -one. Here the Spirit does his work as he applies the Word of God to people's lives. But it requires us to continually encourage each other to keep at that study. They'll be modelling godliness. What does it mean for me to live a godly Christian life? They will watch us. Because remember, they're imitating Jesus and they're imitating us as well. Reading Christian books together. There's great value in doing that. Some of those great classics of the, of, of the Christian faith, Knowing God by Jim Packer, um, Know and Tell the Gospel by John Chapman. Lots of great books that you can read together. Praying together. As Christians bring their longings and desires to God as they pray together, they're encouraged to keep on trusting Christ in the face of a hostile world. This is enormously strengthening to the disciple. And then encouraging the disciple to persevere to the end. And through all of this process, at <coughs> every point on the continuum, we will encourage those, those learners around us to keep on trusting the death of Christ right to the end. The end goal of the disciple-making process is to see a Christian die still trusting Jesus and safely in heaven. That's the end goal. Now, there are some implications for this as we finish up this morning. Uh, although I've described a number of steps, it's important to recognise that not every step in that order is necessary. God's spirit works in whatever way he wants to. Okay? Won't just happen in that order. God's spirit does what he wants. We won't know uh, how he's working. We've just got to keep praying and being at his service. Secondly, making disciples, shit, making disciples is not just about evangelism and discipleship is not just helping a new Christian get established. They are both part of that lifelong process. If every Christian is caught up in this disciple-making venture, then we need to ask how or where are we making our contribution? How do I intentionally make decisions, especially about the use of my time that allow me at some point to be on that continuum, helping another person to be a disciple. Fourthly, we need to recognise that each one of us is also on the continuum as a disciple. 
we are still learning. We are becoming more like Jesus. We need to persevere to the end. And there'll be others around us encouraging us to keep moving to the right. Relations, and fifthly, relationships and personal God, godliness are key to this process because we're not just passing on information. The quality of our lives as we relate to the learners is vital. See, it doesn't really matter whether the, the maths teacher at school is godly or not, the, the horriblest person in the world, but it does matter when you're a Christian. We're inviting people to look at us as we live for Jesus. Yes, we point them to Jesus, but the reality is we will also function as models. Disciples keep moving to the right, but they also jump back. Now, I think I've... No, I've lost that one. No, I didn't put that one in, sorry. Um, they, they also jump back down to the left as they go back to forming relationships. So they... They've moved along to the right, but you get, you know, on that side of the becoming a Christian and you jump back down here to make friends with unbelievers and start helping them move along the, uh, uh, to the right. So we're constantly moving, being a disciple, learning more, jumping back down so that I can help others come along. So disciple making, discipleship, evangelism. It's the one thing. Discipleship is the name of the game. That's what we're on about. And Jesus has caught us all up into this great process of making disciples. Let me pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for this great word in Matthew that helps us see why we should be uh, caught up in your great plans and purposes for the world in making disciples. Father, we thank you for, for the model that you were when you were here on earth, that you were all about reconciliation and bringing people to know uh, your Father. We pray that we would be about the same things as you. Father, help us not to be working against you, but to be working with you. And we thank you that it is your spirit that works in our lives and in the lives of our friends and unbelievers uh, to know you. Father, we, we thank you that uh, it's not our job to convert people, it's yours. And we are so thankful for that. And we pray that as we uh, discuss now, have morning tea and come back, that we will learn a whole lot more about how to make disciples. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.